we all have this strong internal feeling to be accepted, to feel significant. We want to know that what we believe and what we do with our lives is valuable in some way. And we'll often go to great lengths to make sure somebody recognizes us. Whether it's changing our behaviors or putting other people around us to make us feel accepted. C.S. Lewis spoke of this desire to be part of an inner ring. He said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left out. We try to prove ourselves in so many ways in order to get into these rings that we want. So through education, we show how smart we are. Through career pursuits, we show how important we are. Through rule-keeping, listing all the rules we've kept, we show how good of people we are. We want to place ourselves around influential people and show off how important we are so they will endorse our importance as well. And being a Christian doesn't exempt us from this tendency. We want important people also to affirm our faith. So we get excited when some celebrity out there professes to be a Christian. Oh, yes, them too. Or we endorse the presidential candidate who quotes the Bible the most often to makes us feel like our faith is legitimate in the highest office. We don't want the world to think that we're not very smart or we're unimportant. So we try to fill our churches with really smart, intellectual, influential people. But that's not the nature of the kingdom of heaven. There's only one rich, intellectual, influential person in the kingdom, and we are told to find our complete value in Him alone. And the way He intends to build His kingdom is simply by lavishing His grace, His kindness, upon all of those who simply acknowledge their desperate need for Him. We find our acceptance in Him alone. That's the call of our text today, to leave behind all the pursuits for affirmation and follow Him. Before we dig into our text, let's pray and ask Him to reveal how much better it is in Christ. God, our hearts are unsettled always. We are on this constant pursuit to be known and to be loved and to be affirmed. We are creatures desperate for affirmation, yet we lack anything worthy of your affirmation. Help us, God, to see that Jesus is worthy of it all and that we can be welcomed into your presence through him. That he alone deserves all the blessings, but help us to know that we can receive them when we follow him. Amen. I'm so thankful that we're finally back in going through the Gospel of Matthew. It's a lot easier to focus on one thing at a time and to, when you're going verse by verse, that God seems to providentially bring into our church what we should be focusing on. Things that we normally wouldn't think to wrestle with or to apply these truths in ways we wouldn't have considered. So right now we're in a portion of the story that Matthew is telling, where Jesus just finished this long discourse. 
in Matthew chapter 18 with the emphasis on humility towards harmony. He wants his people to get along. And then last week, Jake preached on marriage and divorce at the beginning of chapter 19, and it kind of seemed like it was an abrupt change in focus. But really, it's the beginning of Jesus coming down from his pulpit and applying that truth of humility towards harmony in the various aspects of kingdom life. Every time Jesus goes on these long discourses in the book of Matthew, then he comes down and shows how to apply it to his people. So Jake preached last week on marriage and how we need to humble ourselves and work towards harmony in marriage so that it reflects the harmony that Jesus has with us, the church. And now we see in our text this week, this comparison of little children and this rich, influential young man showing how humility in all we have displays our great dependence upon our wise and wonderful King. We often want to find our own value in our autonomy. We want to be known for how great we are. People to accept us as we are. But then you get married and you find out that doesn't really fly. Marriage is a great way to show your dependence, how much you lack. Similarly, we want to find our value in our social status or how much money we have. But Jesus tells us in this text, leave everything And follow Him to eternal life. So that's our main idea this morning. That every other pursuit in our life is a distraction. It grabs our attention. Or it's blinders which keep our eyes off of what our hearts really long for. The only solution to what our hearts desire is to leave everything and follow Jesus to eternal life. And we'll see this theme here in our text. First, we're going to compare Two types of people who both have lack. One knows it and one doesn't in verses 13 to 22. And then when you recognize what it is you lack, we see how He's going to fill our need. And in verses 23 to 30, we see how the heavenly kingdom grows and what the amazing gifts we gain in Christ are. So let's go back to the text. In verses 13 to 15, just start there and see what it is that we lack. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and went away. So we heard this same thing a few weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 18. This imagery of childlike humility. It continues to show us how this is the key to faithful discipleship in every sphere of life. This utter dependence upon God in everything. And children are such a wonderful picture of dependence because they they have nothing. They own nothing. They lack everything. Kids don't have money or possessions to define their value by. They have no influence in the world, no strength to defend themselves. Their complete identity is dependent on the people that they follow. And so here we see these children brought to Jesus with nothing to offer Him, only asking for blessings. A blessing is a huge deal in the Jewish culture. It's promising you future rewards. It's saying, here's what's coming to you in the future. And now kids are brought with nothing to say, give us 
amazing gifts. And the disciples push them away. To us, that seems rather ridiculous. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know what Jesus is all about. But to the disciples, it made a lot of sense. Remember, they are thinking there's about to be a revolution. They're gathering these huge crowds to elevate Jesus to the throne. They have important kingdom of God work to do. They don't have time for kids. Get the kids out of the way. They're just a burden. They have no influence or productive value. Maybe when they get a little older, they can do some work. Remember, the disciples have their eyes set on some influence in the kingdom. They want to be set on a throne over some region of Jesus' kingdom. And now these kids are getting in the way. But again, like He did before, Jesus rebukes them and He reminds them that to such belong the kingdom of heaven. There is only one great one in the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus. And if you want to be with Him, if you want to be part of His kingdom, you need to humble yourself like one of these little children. Because your part in Christ's kingdom is just as influential as these little children in the world's kingdoms. How you serve and welcome the kids around you says a lot about what you think, how you see yourself before God. So your service in the nursery or Sunday school or what you're thinking when our kids are making noise here says a lot about what you believe about God. Kids are an opportunity for us to display how God's kingdom works when we, the greater, serve the least. Children are important to remind us really how unimportant we are in the kingdom. And we see the counterexample to this in the next scene where this young man comes up to Jesus in verse 16 and he asks, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I become part of your kingdom, Jesus? I see something awesome going on here and I want a piece of it. And keep in mind the contrast between little children on one hand coming to seek affirmation from Jesus with nothing to offer him. And then this rich, young, influential man on the other hand who says, I think I got something to offer you, Jesus. But he still knows something's missing. He wants to know, what does he have to do? What must I accomplish in order to get in your inner ring, Jesus? I've tried many good things. I've found a lot of success in this world. But now he sees something even greater set before him. He wants that too. And surprisingly, Jesus accepts his terms of the conversation. He just starts right there where he starts the conversation. But he's not going to let the man stay there long. So he says in verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is just a great lesson on how to have evangelistic conversations. You start where they are, let them bring up what's on their heart, and then help define the terms of the conversation biblically, and then show them how all the answers to their questions, all the satisfaction to their heart's desires, are going to come up empty unless they find Christ. So this man wants to talk about good works. Well, let's talk about good works, he says. But to be certain, let's make sure we have our definition straight so we can have a productive conversation and not talk past one another. And so Jesus defines for him 
the word good. He says God himself is the standard. God is the definition of good. And he gave us a list of things that can help us understand how good he is. It's called the commandments. So, take a look. How do you measure up? And the man says, well, which one do you want me to look at here, Jesus? That's actually an honest question. It's not being too evasive. When we think of the commandments, our minds immediately go to the Ten Commandments and we start listing them off. But in the Jewish mindset, they see the whole first five books of the Old Testament, the whole Bible, as the law containing 613 laws, commands for them to follow. And then interpreters came along later and read into it and said, well, we better add this law and this law to help you keep that law as well. So this guy might legitimately be asking, uh, there's a lot here. I, I think I've done a really good job, but I admit there might be one obscure law over here that I missed. So help me out. Show me which one. I'm willing to learn because I really want to be part of your inner ring, Jesus. And Jesus then clarifies for him, says it's not as complicated as you think, my friend. Gives him a basic summary of all those laws in verses 18 and 19. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Really, it's all saying love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second half of the Ten Commandments, essentially, and the second great commandment, which summarizes all that. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that complicated. And yet, it's really difficult. Because this is the character of God Himself. God gives life. God is always faithful. He's always satisfied in what He has. He's always telling the truth. He always acts in accordance with the Father's plan. Nobody loves others more than God Himself. Have you met this standard? The young man ponders for probably not long enough. And in verse 20 says, yeah, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? It's the wrong answer. He should have thought a little harder. Now he's trapped. So on a human level, he thinks, yeah, I've done a pretty good job of keeping these commandments. You know, many people live really moral lives. My atheist friends like to remind me, you don't need to be religious to be a good person. But by saying that, you reveal that your standard of measurement is broken. It's not just a list of how to be nice to other people, how to get along. This list is about God, who God is. It's a representation of the creator of the universe. Are you perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? The man thinks he might be, but he's got this nagging feeling that he's not. And he can't figure out why. He's missing something. He just can't put his finger on it. He's asking Jesus, help me figure this out. And so finally, after setting the stage, Jesus mercifully reveals his root sin. Again, a great lesson in evangelism to show how all of our explanations are going to fall short without Christ. He says in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And come, 
follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Here's what the man lacked. In having every earthly possession, he revealed that he himself was his own God. He wasn't dependent upon God. His trust was in his own riches. His own social status. His entrance into Jesus' inner ring in his mind was totally dependent upon how influential he was. He thought Jesus would be so impressed to have him part of his team. He didn't come to Jesus to exchange earthly treasures for greater heavenly treasures. He came just to add on top of his account. He didn't come to be part of Jesus' kingdom. He came for Jesus to endorse his kingdom. Jesus says, no, to enter eternal life, you need to lay it all down. Let it all go and come to him empty handed. Now, we need to be pretty careful applying this story to our own lives. There's a couple of ditches that we might tend to fall into. On the one hand, you have people who read this and say, yep, being rich is sin. It's wrong to have money. So you need to, as quickly as possible, get rid of all your money and then just go full communist. Become a hermit or a monk or a liberal hipster as quickly as possible. In response to this mistake, others get defensive. Well, Jesus, He's not really telling us we have to get rid of everything. We just need to be prepared in case He does come asking. And then they start defending all the great ways in which riches and influence can be helpful for the kingdom of God, which misses the entire point. We really are called to forsake everything, and yet at the same time, not called to be communists. We're simply called to recognize that everything is from God. We are like the children in verse 13, utterly dependent upon the mercy of God. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, why do you guys boast about what you have? What do you have that you did not receive? It's all God's money anyway. He gives it to you every single penny for you to use for his purposes. And Paul instructs Timothy in his letter to Timothy, remind the rich people not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of earthly riches, but to recognize it all comes from God. It's a gift from God who richly pours out His treasures to you so that you can find your greatest joy in Him. Riches are a tool to bless others in the way that Jesus lavishly blesses little children who have nothing to offer Him. If this rich young man had really compared himself to God as Jesus tried to do with him, he would have realized he didn't just lack one thing. His entire life was lacking. He lacked certainty in the riches of God. At any moment, his whole life could have been taken away from him. It's easy for a child to recognize his utter dependence upon God, his need for undeserved blessings. But for a rich man, it's much more difficult. We see how difficult in verses 23 to 30. But we see what also what we have to gain if we leave it all behind. 
Again, it's easy for a child to come to Jesus and receive blessings because he has nothing. All he can do is ask. And that's where we should be. Every single day saying, I need more. I need more. I have nothing to give you. Just keep giving me more. But it's much more difficult for someone who's accumulated wealth, whether it's financial wealth or the wealth of wonderful family and friends who are there to catch you if you fall. Or if you fail and fall into trouble, they can pick you back up. They can encourage you and affirm you at every turn. The more you have, the harder it is to see your need for all that God has. So Jesus, with this example of this rich man, turns to his disciples in verse 23 and teaches them, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And we see that. It's quite obvious to this point, but it kind of makes you wonder, how difficult? Like, is there still a slight possibility? Jesus doesn't even let them answer the question. He just says, it's impossible. It's as possible for the largest known, commonly known animal in our area, a camel, to fit through the smallest commonly known opening, the eye of a needle. It's just not happening. It's ridiculous to even talk about. Again, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us and 2,000 years removed from this ancient Jewish culture, it seems obvious to us how difficult this would be, but not to the disciples. They are astonished at this saying. Verse 25, who then can be saved? Are you kidding me? You just condemned every single person on earth. Because in the Jewish mindset, wealth was a sign of covenantal faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you read the list of blessings and curses. If you're faithful, if you follow God's commands, then you will have wonderful blessings showered upon you, including marvelous wealth. But if you fail, if you disobey God, terrible curses will fall on you, including poverty, utter poverty. So this rich young man comes up to them with that mindset and they're thinking, this is the most faithful man we have ever met. They're enamored with his arrival. Finally, someone with wisdom and power and influence and riches is ready to join their movement. Now, this little band of Jesus followers is going to have some legitimacy in the world. Now it's time for the revolution. This is the kind of guy we need in our movement. And Jesus turned him away. Are you kidding me? He welcomes little children and he turns away influential leaders. What can he be thinking? How is he going to restore the entire world to peace and righteousness with children? Does he not know how powerful that Roman Empire is? We will be crushed. This is impossible. And now they're ready. Now they're right where God wants them. Verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is how God works. He wipes everything out. He makes it look impossible and then shows up on the scene to work in a way that's obvious. He's the one that did it. Need to start a new nation? Go get that wandering hermit over there named Abram in the land of Ur. Yeah, he'll, he'll make a good head of a new nation. 
Oh, Israel needs a king. Hey, see that shepherd boy over there? No, 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 you're, no, not that one. Yeah, that one over there. He'll make a great king. The whole nation of Israel taken out of their land, their, their property burned and salted so nothing can grow and now they're occupied by the Roman Empire. Send a baby, God's own son, to sprout up out of the wasteland and save his people from their sins. This is how God works. And now that king calls not the influential people to his kingdom, but those who have nothing to give. So when his kingdom prevails, when he is victorious, it's clear it's all for his glory, not ours. But in the moment, the disciples still don't see it. They're, they're in the impossible phase, the wipe everything clean phase of the plan. So they ask Jesus in verse 27, okay, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? They've left it all. They've followed him for a few years now, it seems like. They've been going all over the countryside with him and they're wondering, where is this thing going? We left our family behind, our good jobs. We had to sell some things to have money in order to eat on this wandering journey. We've decided to completely shape our value, our identity around you, Jesus. We've determined to only seek affirmation from you. Where is this going to end up? And now, whether they realize it or not, with this question... God is bringing them as little children right before Jesus to receive his blessings. And he opens up the floodgates in verses 28 and 29. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Did you you catch that? What have they been longing for? What have they been arguing for? A place to rule in his kingdom, and now he's given it to them. But they're not going to achieve that. They're not going to receive that when that is their primary goal. They would only receive it when being with Jesus and glorifying him is their goal. Only when they see that the whole kingdom is by his power and for his glory will they be ready for a place in it. The blessings continue. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Sometimes following Jesus is going to cost you a lot. You might lose family or friends. You might lose your home. Have to move away. You might not get the children your heart has longed for so long, but it's totally worth it. The treasures of the kingdom of heaven are far greater than anything we could accomplish in this world anyway. And these blessings don't just start someday long into the future, but right now as the kingdom breaks through in His Christ-like disciples. That's what the church is. We are the promised family that replaces the one we have to leave behind. The children that are among us in the church are your children as well as us parents are dependent upon you to help point them to Christ. 
We might have to leave behind houses or homelands, but those who remain with their homes intact gladly open the doors and say, be part of my family. So that all of your heritage and your interests and your dreams and your desires and your successes and failures become all of ours as well. The church is a model of the coming life in heaven. We are the first and perhaps only taste some people will get of what Christ's kingdom will be like. And that is a huge responsibility. A responsibility that's undertaken completely opposite of how the world would do it. It's an upside-down kingdom. Jesus says in verse 30, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That affirmation, that pursuit of, for affirmation that all of us have, Jesus is flipping it on its head. You cannot have a place in His kingdom hungering for your own affirmation, trying to prove your own worthiness. You'll never be satisfied in a search for an identity that others will all finally be happy to affirm. You'll never find that friend, that group of friends, that inner ring, where they'll always affirm you for everything you do. That's an empty pursuit. The only answer to that heart's desire is to leave it all behind and follow Him to eternal blessings. Notice this theme of coming to follow Jesus in, throughout this section. In verse 14, Jesus says to the children, Come to Me. Verse 21, He says to the rich young man, Come and follow Me. Verse 27, He promises all these blessings to all those who have followed Me. Being a Christian isn't about what you have or don't have. It's not about taking what you have and giving it away as though you can buy your way into heaven. It's not about the good deeds you do as though you can prove your worth to get into heaven. It's all about following Jesus. Admitting, I have nothing. I have no value. I'm completely dependent upon you, Jesus, to give me value. I'm unable to measure up. There's nothing in me worthy of affirmation. And finally, when you get to that broken state, you follow Jesus who promises you joyful blessings now and especially in the world to come. So whatever you find yourself grasping onto to receive affirmation today, just let it go. Let go of that search for worth and value and follow Jesus because He alone is worthy of affirmation. He's the only one who deserves unreserved blessing because He's the only one who really can say all these commandments I have kept. He's the only one who has the credentials to be part of the inner ring. And yet, because of His great love, He went to the cross and bore the curse of the law for us. He was cast outside the ring. And in His resurrection, He defeated that curse so He can offer us the blessings We share in them not by keeping the law, not by coming with influence, but by simply following Jesus. Leave behind all of your pursuits for affirmation and follow Jesus. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have these joyful promises that fill your heart with hope. And they'll fill your heart so much that it has to overflow into others. When you realize how great this heavenly treasure is, 
you suddenly go, this treasure gets better if I share it with others. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth with childlike disciples. Followers of Jesus. He could have, right when we saved us, taken us out of here so we could enjoy our heavenly home. But He left us here so that we could do what verse 13 says. Bring more children to Him. So you hear me calling you to be more evangelistic. Proclaim the Gospel to the world and you've already got all kinds of fears in your mind. How am I supposed to do that? I'm just an ignorant little child. Well, Jesus knew what He was doing when He called you. We do it just like He did. He looked for those who knew they had nothing and He offered them the kingdom. He started conversations with those who thought they already had everything and He connected with them on their ground. He defined the terms for them and He showed them how their heart really longs for Him and His kingdom. We tend to overcomplicate evangelism. You don't need to be an evangelist, a street preacher, some eloquent conversationalist. You don't need to memorize some evangelistic presentation like the four spiritual laws, the Romans road, the way of the master. Jesus knows what he's doing. He wants you to be children and just talk about all your hopes, all your dreams, all your fears, all your desires are promised to be satisfied in him and his promises. So the way we are witnesses to the ends of the earth is simply talk to people. Get to know the rich and the poor, the disadvantaged and the influential, the young and the old. Talk to them about how Jesus satisfies the longing of your heart. Meet them in conversation and tell them, children won't satisfy you, riches won't satisfy you, food won't satisfy you, marriage won't satisfy you, your career will not satisfy you. All these things God has given you to show you how utterly dependent upon Him you are. And you will only find full acceptance in Him from the one whose full acceptance matters. Let's not be a church that gives the impression that we're about building God's kingdom by gathering the smart and influential among us. That's not God's strategy. We're to bring children to Him. Childlike people. The ones who, when they are among us, they're not going to affirm how great you are. But they're hungry to enjoy the greatness of Jesus along with us. Jesus won't be impressed by us bringing more important people to Him. But He will be delighted to shower His blessings upon those who know they have nothing to offer. So may God help us. Help every one of us be childlike, admitting we have nothing, and bring others to enjoy His treasures with us. Let's pray. God, how many ways do we try to do church to prove how influential, how smart we are, how excellent we are, how organized we are? Instead of simply being children who cast all their cares to the side and say, I want Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. God, help us to know that we can have the greatest affirmation in the world when we follow Jesus. 
We don't have to prove ourselves with good deeds. We don't have to work our way to the top. We just grab a hold of Jesus. And when we do, we get a smile from heaven that says, well done. Well done, my beloved son. God, may that satisfy our hearts and lead us to praise you and to tell others and invite others to receive his blessings. Amen.